The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These podcasts are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. We know now that this is not going to be a short-term event, but something that's going to last for a while. So we obviously want to base our decisions on the best quality data that comes out. And there are new studies literally every day being published. COVID-19 cases continue to surge. ASRM has issued a new update of patient management and clinical recommendations, and we talk about it today on the podcast. Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I am Jeffrey Hayes. On this episode, I speak with Dr. Jody Dion Odom. I began our conversation by asking her about her role in the ASRM Coronavirus COVID-19 Task Force. Thank you for having me. My role on the ASRM Task Force is to be the consultant in infectious diseases. I am an assistant professor in infectious diseases at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and the chief of women's health at the 1917 HIV clinic. And in my work, I take care of patients, but I also really focus on prevention of infection and in pregnancy in women in the U.S. and in Africa. What brought you to infectious diseases in reproductive medicine? You know, the two, my two passions ever since I was a kid have been germs and women, and they really fit together in a really important way. Um, especially in pregnancy, it's really fascinating how there are certain infections that are more likely um, to cause infection and cause severe disease in pregnancy, and that um, both from a patient provider level to an intellectual level is really fascinating. What does this new update provide? So I think that this update is the promise that we've made to people reading the updates that we will continue to make sure this is the latest data that we have. We started doing this in March and we've learned a lot since March about some about how to treat, some about how to prevent and what to do in healthcare settings around this pandemic. We know now that this is not gonna be a short-term event, but something that's gonna last for a while. So we obviously wanna base our decisions on the best quality data that comes out. And there are new studies literally every day being published. So this update number seven is one month after update number six with the newest data that we have. Will the next update be another month and coming or is that time gonna get shorter? Is it gonna get longer? So we were initially very ambitious and we were doing updates every two weeks because things were happening so quickly at the beginning. Right now, what we said is we'll do an update every month in the absence of something really earth shattering. If there's something really important that comes out in the science that we think needs to get out to this um, group of clinicians and investigators now, we will absolutely um, do one before then. But the plan for now is uh, middle of September for the next What's the implication then for clinicians? What do they need to do with this information that's in this very important update? The update is broken down into several sections, and I would say there are implications in each of those sections. So at the top of the document, we're really just updating everyone on where we are in the pandemic. The statistics that everyone knows that worldwide we're still dealing with this. Um, we're up to 5 million cases in the U.S. with about 50,000 new cases a day across wide parts of our country. And unfortunately, 1,000 deaths a day for a total of 163,000 deaths. So big problem, not going anywhere, still with us. Dr. Odom, what does the update provide about testing? So the changes in the recommendations around testing are really just keeping everyone informed that we continue to have less access to testing than we would like. 
Um, ideally, what providers want, what patients want is a rapid test with quick turnaround time, with reliable results that you can act on right away to plan your day, to plan when the patient is okay to have the procedure. And unfortunately, we are not there yet. We have a lot more testing capacity than we did in March, but we don't have the testing capacity at the place where we want it to be. And unfortunately, some of the testing has such a long turnaround time that it's taking seven or eight days to find out if a patient is positive or negative. And you've really missed the whole window to make clinical decisions when you're waiting eight days for a result. So a long ways to go um, when it comes to testing. We've, we're better, but we have a long ways to go. The mental health aspect of this pandemic has continued to expand. What does this update say about mental health? Yeah, you know, I couldn't agree more. Initially, we focus on the virus and the consequences of the virus on the body and how it's passed from person to person. Those are all really important. But some of the indirect effects of being socially isolated, of being worried if you have an infection of passing it to your loved ones, of what the implication is for a couple who's been trying for years to conceive having to delay the next cycle. There is a growing recognition, well done studies now, showing increases in anxiety and depression and insomnia, feelings of frustration and hurt and anger. Um, and this isn't limited just to patients, for all humans dealing with this pandemic. So this impacts our staff. This impacts nurses, it impacts physicians. So what we tried to do is there's a very nice section on mental health in the, this update number seven that goes through a review of the data saying that many of these outcomes, depression, anxiety, are more common in women compared to men, more common in younger women compared to older women, and then give some resources. I think the first step for all of us is to be really aware that this is happening. And a lot of patients may be reluctant to bring up some of these mental health issues with, on, with you on a visit or on a video conference. So it's good to probe and ask about it, to check in with someone and see how they're feeling. And honestly, check in with one another as we're colleagues and working with our teams. Not to assume the way we used to assume that everything is fine if no one is saying anything about it. There are resources out there. So the other part of the document is connecting people to those resources if they would like to talk with a counselor or speak with someone in more detail about it. So if you would, can you talk a little bit about what this particular update talks about with treatment? Yes, I'd be happy to. So we now have several well-done studies. So we have new data that we didn't have before. And what our data is showing us is for patients with moderate to severe disease who are admitted to the hospital, we have two drugs that are effective for them. One is dexamethasone steroid therapy, and one is remdesivir antiviral therapy. So both of these have been shown to have a beneficial impact on health outcomes, but these are patients who are quite sick in the hospital, many of them on um, breathing machines and needing oxygen therapy. What we don't have yet that we all are anxious to have is a treatment for people who are still at home and not feeling well, a treatment for early disease to prevent it from progressing to serious disease, and even a prophylactic therapy, where if we know someone's going to be exposed to COVID-19, can we give them a medication to prevent them from becoming ill? So there are over 200 clinical trials that are being done right now, many, many of them looking at these types of questions. For now, the data that we have for hydroxychloroquine, for example, is that it is not recommended. We have insufficient data in case your patients are asking you for this, 
for this type of medicine. It's been studied in mild, moderate to severe disease, and it does not improve health outcomes by itself or in combination with azithromycin. So we wanted to be really clear about that for providers who may be getting some pushback about it. Um, the other really important point to make is that we wanted to encourage people who are designing these trials to include women of reproductive age, to include couples undergoing infertility treatment to include pregnant women, because if we don't include them now as we're doing phase three trials, we won't have options for our women of reproductive age in the future. So with informed consent, women can understand what the risks and benefits of participating are, and they can decide what's best, whether or not they want to participate, but they need to be given that opportunity. Is that something that history has taught us too, that going back and looking at something like the polio vaccine and, and things of that nature, knowing that we need to constantly expand testing groups and to, to include more, just as you're pointing out here? It has. I would say that in the past, there's been a great focus on risk and considering pregnant women as vulnerable and women trying to get pregnant as vulnerable, which leaves out a whole part of the equation where they're also vulnerable to these diseases. And if they get infected with some of these infections and we don't have a way to treat them, that is also not a good situation to be in. So instead of excluding them because they're quote unquote vulnerable, the move now within the scientific community and the medical community is to advocate for them to be included when it makes sense, when there's enough preclinical data to say that it can be tested in pregnant women or women who are trying to conceive, and then to present the data in a very fair way to the woman so she can decide. Some women will say yes, some women will say no, but they shouldn't be automatically excluded at the get-go because then you have the unfortunate scenario where we have treatments that work for everybody, except we have no idea if it works in women of reproductive age, and no one wants to be in that situation. Uh, staying with vaccines in general, is there anything that the audience needs to know about vaccines? Yeah, so there's a lot of media about vaccines right now. Um, I'm sure that your readers know there's about 26 candidate vaccines being tested in phase one through three trials. Um, these vaccines are all different platforms. There's a 30,000 person study looking at the Moderna mRNA vaccine that just got kicked off and another one looking at an adenoviral vector-based vaccine that will be starting very soon. These are large studies where people will be randomized to vaccine or placebo to see if there's an impact at preventing COVID-19. So we hope to have results for these in the next several months. Um, until we have a vaccine, we really have these treatments that have some benefit, but not, you know, gangbuster treatments. And it all goes back to prevention, saying until we have an effective armamentarium with a vaccine that prevents this disease, let's do everything we can to avoid person-to-person -person transmission. Right. Through, again, just through the simple tasks of masks and gloves and just being cautious of, uh, around other people. And I'll use that opportunity then to segue to ask you about what are the updates regarding PPE in general the task force is, is recommending in this update? Yeah, I think it's really important. It's sort of like a drum that we've all been beating, but it's good to remind providers to keep beating that drum. These simple public health measures of physical distancing of six feet, of avoiding crowds, of wearing a mask every time you go out, we know that these work. We know that they're effective. And they may be particularly effective in light of new information that we have about the relevance of airborne transmission. So we have always thought about 
coronavirus 19 as similar to influenza and that it's predominantly transmitted from person to person through droplets. But with some new collaborations with people who focus on airflow dynamics, what we're learning is some of the particles seem to be able to persist in the air for longer, leaving a risk for people, for example, if you walk onto an empty elevator that may have just been filled by someone who had coronavirus. This means much more awareness of being in spaces, particularly indoors, and of wearing masks to protect you from breathing in or breathing out these viruses that can be in the levels of millions in our nose and in our throat when we're sick. Since 30 to 40% of people with COVID-19 are asymptomatic, um, many people will feel fine but still be very infectious. So that's why all of this is underpinned by our understanding of the virus and how it transmits. So what we wanted to do in this section is update the PPE wording, um, which is listed as a table at the end. And you'll see almost all of it is the same. We have a column for the provider and a column for what the patient needs to do. What we added was more wording about eye protection. Since there is more recognition about the airborne risk, and since it is recognized in some studies that contact with the eyes, either with airborne or more likely with your fingers touching your eye, is a risk for healthcare workers and non-healthcare workers that it is a good idea to have eye protection. And many hospital facilities are buying these face shields, not in place of a mask, but in addition to the mask as an extra layer of protection. You know, we all think about our healthcare workers as the front line. And since we're all going to be in this for at least a year or longer. I think everything we can do to protect the doctors and nurses and the front desk staff and the receptionists who are seeing patients every day is really, really important. It sends the message that we're all in this together and that we're all a team. Um, and there is much more PPE availability than there was at the beginning in March and in April. So that's that's a good thing. There, you can find face masks more readily and you can get these face shields. Um, some of them are on back order, but if you prepare for it in your clinic, you can at least guarantee your staff that you have um, adequate PPE for them as they're on the front line. Are there any last points you would like listeners to take away with them from our conversation today? Well, I mean, I think the, uh, the, the last thing I would say is just a reminder to all the providers out there. There's a lot of misinformation and there's a lot of distrust in our communities now, but the number one person who's trusted, when you ask the public, people will almost always say is their personal provider, their physician. So just don't forget the, the position that you're in. If you have a discussion with someone about masking or about se separation, it may seem brief to you, but that may be what changes someone's behavior because they weigh what you say so heavily. So just not to forget that position that we have. And it's not everyone is trusted these days. So to, to have that space where the patient trusts what you say, if you are honest with them, is I think um, something to, to keep in mind. The old saying, honesty is the best policy, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Jody Dion Odom, thank you so much for being able to, to take time out and to be with us on ASRM today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Jody Dion Odom, member of the ASRM Coronavirus COVID-19 Task Force. Until next time, I am Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, other information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org.